All right, we are about two-thirds of the way through Genesis 1 through 11 now. We are steadily making progress. We finish our fourth sermon series in Genesis 1 through 4 today, which has been answering the question, is there any hope for this world? So at the end of this morning's sermon, we will answer that question, um, hopefully very clearly. We are in the middle of the Toledot of Noah. Remember, the book of Genesis was edited together by Moses, and he uh, collected these archives of Jewish patriarchs uh, so that we could learn from their history, but primarily so Israel in the Exodus could learn from their history. Noah received the largest amount of uh, space in Genesis 1 through 11. His is the longest Toledot aside from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is a very important character and he teaches Israel and he teaches us a very important thing about God and that is God's faithfulness to his promises. So this morning as we finish Genesis 7, we get to the peak of the flood. We get to Uh, the worst that it's going to get. We'll look at the universal deluge. Deluge is just a fancy word for flood. We will look at the unprecedented destruction that it caused and the ultimate deliverance of Noah and his family and all those who were on the ark together with him. So the main point this morning is nothing outside of God's salvation survives his perfect and complete judgment. Destruction will be complete. Those within his protection are as completely saved as those outside are completely destroyed. It is a black and white, God's judgment and God's salvation. We can thank him that we are already safe in the ark of his salvation. So first we do look at this universal deluge how the waters of the flood covered the whole earth and what that did. We saw in verses 10 through 12 that it was the fountains of the great deep that burst open and then the floodgates of the heavens opened as well. Those won't close for 40 days. But in those 40 days, uh, the process of accumulating water continues and continues and continues. And so in Genesis 717, our first verse for this morning, when the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the waters. Seven different times, In this section, Moses is going to reference this flood and what exactly happened pertaining to this flood. The first time he references it, he calls it the flood, and from that point forward, he uses the shorthand, the waters, the waters, the waters. And each time he does this, he relates those waters to the earth. The flood came upon the earth. The waters increased above the earth. The water prevailed upon the earth. He does this. I think, to contrast what God is doing with the ark. He is floating the ark on the surface of the waters. 
The fate of those in the ark is altogether different from those who remained upon the earth. For one, there is destruction. For the other, there is preservation. There is protection. We also see that as the waters came, they continued to increase in intensity. At first, they simply came upon the earth. Then they increased upon the earth. And then they prevailed and increased greatly. Each time he repeats this, he repeats it even more intensely. We get the sense of rising judgment, of increasing intensity in judgment. We see this as a pattern as well when we get to Revelation, where each of the seven or three rounds of seven judgments increase in intensity as God continues, so that at first a fourth of the world is killed, then a third of the world is killed, and finally half of the world is killed by the end of the judgments on the earth in Revelation. So we see the same pattern here. God's perseverance towards Noah and towards the generations before the flood was long. 120 years, he extended grace. But at a certain point, grace ends. I think this is something that people don't often realize when they look around the world and they say, why doesn't God just take care of this? Why doesn't he end this suffering? Why doesn't he end this pain? I think what they don't realize is they're asking, why doesn't he end his grace already? Why isn't he done being graceful? What they don't often realize is that will shut them outside of the ark. God perseveres with the pain and suffering on this earth for the sake of the unbeliever who may get on the ark. But at a certain point, the door is shut. There will be a day where grace ends. It is no mistake, I believe, that the longest period in human history so far is the age of grace. This is characteristic of a holy and just but merciful God. As these waters are rising... God's ark is rising above it. It is not inundated by the flood. It is carried above the earth safely. It's lifted up, it rises above the earth, and it floats. Now this word for float uh, isn't really in the original, but I think the NASB did a fantastic job of translating this because how do you go on water? You float on water. So some have said that the ark doesn't actually float, it just goes on water. I would like to see how that happens uh, if it's not floating. This ark floated. This should dispel completely and entirely the argument of whether or not the ark was actually feasible. God says it floated. He gave Noah the design. Noah completed the design. God says it floated. So it floated. Now, I am a, uh, a proponent of coming up with your own imagination. I uh, like to read scripture and imagine what this would be like. Hollywood doesn't like to leave much to your imaginations, and it has uh, done its fair share of attempting to uh, portray what the flood would have looked like. But the flood that uh, I'm going to show you in a second that is a Hollywood rendering it doesn't look much like what God's word says the flood looked like. Now, they're not trying to recreate Noah's ark. 
They are looking forward to a future judgment. They've already got their ducks out of a row because God says he won't send a flood like this again. But uh, take a look at this clip from the movie 2012, where they, the world has built six different arcs to try to save themselves from the coming floods. Man has a tendency to deal more in unbelief than in belief. These are arcs of steel far greater in size. People were fighting to get onto these arcs. They had six of them instead of one, and not all of them made it. And uh, the waters didn't quite cover all of the mountains, but they, I think, tried to get them up as high as they could. That was Mount Everest that this ark crashed into. But this puts in the mind of people the unfeasibility of Noah's Ark. It, it turns it into a Hollywood production that uh, is fiction. And uh, little by little, it chips away at faith. But they've not been completely honest about what it was like. All we have to do is turn to God's word and see these waters rose slowly. They have the entire earth being flooded in a single day by the plates of the earth shifting around and causing massive tsunamis that look nothing like a real tsunami. And so as it came to the arcs, it crashed in violently, and they were thrown about this way and that, and not all of them made it. But here in God's word, he has already answered for all of those issues. The water slowly increased over 40 days. It rose and rose and rose until it flooded the whole earth. And how far did it flood it? 15 cubits higher than the highest peak. It's almost as if God knew how high he was going to flood the earth before he instructed Noah how to build the ark. Because he told him to build it 30 cubits high. And the draught on, a, on an arc this high, depending on how full it is, would be between one-third and one-half of its height. One-half would be max if the arc were full. But with room for about 176,000 animals, probably only 16,000 were actually on the ark. That's all that was necessary. And then only eight people, when you could have fit about 100,000 people on the ark. This was a massive ark that could have fit that many people and still uh, cleared the highest peak. Remember, God knew what he was doing when he told Noah how to construct this ark. He maximized strength, comfort, and stability for the perfect balanced ark. I have one more clip. I don't have to uh, be silent during this one because it's not copyrighted. Uh, this is what a tsunami actually looks like. It rises slowly. Now, I remember watching this one, not in person, obviously, but March 11th, 2011, if you remember the Sendai earthquake that uh, killed 18,000 people in northern Japan. I was surprised that these rising tsunami waves didn't look like they do in the pictures. What fascinated me about this was 
all of the water was slowly rising and carrying everything with it. It almost looked like how Moses, who probably never saw a tsunami, Moses knew better how to describe the rising waters than Hollywood knows. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit inspired him and told him what it would look like. Now, this is hard to watch. Imagine how hard it was for Noah to watch. This killed 18,000 people. We don't know how many millions, if not billions, perished in Noah's flood. So we should have that in our minds, as dramatic as that picture is, when we think of these waters prevailing now more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains were covered everywhere under the heavens. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. That is a lot of rising water over a substantial period of time, 40 days, that's more than a month. I remember when I was in fourth grade, my teacher had a count up on the board to see how many days of rain we got. Um, Being in Washington, it's not easy to get more than 40 days of rain. I was a little surprised when we got to the 40th day and it wasn't flooding everywhere. But uh, again, this is Washington. We're used to lots of rain. This was something unlike the earth had ever seen before. In fact, the earth had probably never seen rain before. Now, this word that keeps getting repeated, gabar, prevailed, is the same word used for an army overcoming, an army prevailing against another. In Exodus 17, by the same author, Moses, he uses this word, when talking about the children of Israel and the uh, Amalekites fighting. It says, Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. This prevailing water came as a conquering army over the whole earth, and it destroyed everything in its path. Humanity did not prevail. The waters did. God said humanity, which had corrupted the earth, would now be destroyed by the earth. His word came to pass exactly as he said it would. That does raise the question, how were the mountains covered? This would be very deep flood, would it not? We've got Mount Rainier at over 14,000 feet. Mount Everest is over twice as high at 29,029 feet. Mount Ararat, 16,000 feet. This is where, or in the mountain range at least, where Noah would have landed in the ark in the lower Ural Mountains. How is it that the water rose to cover those mountains? Where did the water go? That's the wrong question. The question is, where did the mountains come from? Were these mountains present before the flood? Probably not. These mountains are probably scars from the flood. As the plates split apart and some sunk under others, mountain ranges lifted up. This is why mountain ranges parallel the coasts. As one crust is 
plunged beneath another, the sediment has to go somewhere. And then you get about as far from the mid-Atlantic ridge as you can, and you get things like the, um, the Himalayans, which were probably sediment that came from the flood over those 40 days of increasing waters. And then as they began to decrease, the plates come together and they pooch up and you get massive mountains. So we're not surprised then when we find that Mount Everest, the peak is made out of marine limestone and it's filled with marine fossils. How did they get up there? I don't think the flood put them up there. I think the flood put them down in the sediment beds that then got uh, pushed up as the flood continued, uh, as the earth continued to split open over those 40 days. Moses knew exactly what he was saying, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write, when he said that all of the mountains were covered. Some say that this might be all that, Mo or that Noah could see. All sometimes might be just a restricted area. For example, in Exodus, when it's all the land of Egypt. But that is linguistically consistent because all is qualified by the land of Egypt. Here, all is not only unqualified, but it is repeated. We have a double all. In Hebrew, it's called the double kol. Kol means all. And uh, Leopold, a good Hebrew linguist, says that you can, you can make the argument that all doesn't mean all when there's just one all, but when there's two alls, it has to be all. Kind of an interesting argument here, but there is simply no other way to read this passage than all. Not only were they all the mountains, stated twice the mountains, but it was under all the heavens. This is not in relation to what Noah could see. This is in relation to what God could see. Everything on the earth was completely covered. There need be no argument of men couldn't survive that high up on mountains, so the mountains didn't need to be covered. That is an argument from disbelief. We argue from God's word and we stand on a firm foundation. God's word says every single mountain was covered. The mountains probably didn't rise up until during the flood. This is a good parallel here with Exodus 9, something that the language probably would have reminded Israel of as they are reading this story from Moses. One of the plagues, Moses writes, so there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been in the land of Egypt since it became a nation, something altogether brand new. The hail struck all that was in the field, all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. I'm guessing by all of these alls that Moses actually meant 
every single one in all of the land, save only for Goshen, where God's people were being protected. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. This looks a lot like the ark story. God protected Noah in the flood. God protected Israel in the plagues while he was judging Egypt. Israel can start to see a pattern here. When God says he is going to judge those who are in the land of Canaan, go down into it, they should completely expect that he will protect them and overcome the enemies. Here I like this quote by Matthew Henry. I think it gets right to the heart of the issue. There is no place on earth so high as to set men out of the reach of God's judgments. Why is it important that all the mountain peaks were covered? That they were all covered 15 cubits deep, that's 22 and a half feet. Have you ever swum in a pool that was 22 and a half feet deep? I haven't even seen one that deep. I'm sure there are. I couldn't touch the bottom of the 12-foot pool on Vashon. 22 and a half feet would be pretty hard to survive even for a day or two. There was nowhere on earth that was a refuge for man save only for the ark of God. And this was no local flood. This was a universal flood, a global flood. The land that you are sitting on today was once deep in water. It is worth our time to look at a few different proofs of that fact, because that will grow our confidence in God's word. Scientists, Hollywood, the secular world would like to find ways to chip away at faith. So here this morning, we are going to strengthen faith. I have 13 different proofs that I have collected for you that this flood could be nothing but a global flood. The first one is the ark would be completely unnecessary if this were not a global flood. Think of how long the warning to Noah was. He had 120 years. If this flood were just going to fill the land of Mesopotamia, God could have just sent Noah out of the land. Perhaps like he did with Lot when he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He did not have Lot build a stronghold in the city because there was a place to escape outside the city. There was no place for Noah to escape outside of the reach of the flood. No matter how far he walked on the earth, it would be covered with water. The ark would be completely unnecessary if the flood were not global. The size of the ark would be absurd. Why would you need so much space unless you were protecting or preserving, rather, life to bring to a new world? If these creatures could have existed in other places in the world, why did he need to bring two of each onto the ark? The size demonstrates its purpose. In fact, it could have been much smaller yet and still have been too large to merit a local flood. 
That leads us to the point that including animals would be unnecessary if this were a local flood. They could flee the Mesopotamian Valley. They could just not come anywhere near Noah, not come anywhere near the ark rather than be gathered to it. They could go the other direction. This is one of my favorite ones. There is simply no better way to describe a universal flood. Moses did everything in his linguistic abilities to tell you that this was a universal flood. The inverse of this is not true. There are plenty of better ways to describe a local flood. In fact, this would be a pretty poor job of describing a local flood. There is no better way to say what Moses intended to say, but there are a countless number of ways to say that it was local. The length of the flood is inconsistent or is a only consistent with a universal flood. The waters continued to rise, or at least hit their zenith, for 150 days. This doesn't happen in local floods. This is almost half a year at its max depth. It took 75 days to drain to the point of seeing the first mountain peak probably about 16,000 feet. It took 167 days for the waters to actually disappear from the point they began to withdraw, and 225 days total to reach dry land. That's 375 days from beginning to end. That's more than a year. Floods that are local do not last that long. The depth of the flood is consistent with a universal flood. At its shallowest, this flood was 22 and a half feet. At the very shallowest point, at the highest point of earth. Water seeks uh, a neutral ground. It will be at the same level in all places. That means it only got deeper from there. Even today, the earth is 70% covered in water. Its average depth is two and almost a half miles deep. The average land altitude is only half a mile high. If you flattened that out even a little bit, it's going to be deep in water. In fact, if you flatten it out completely smooth, it's 1.7 miles deep in water. There was plenty of water. In fact, there is still plenty of water on the earth. It hasn't gone anywhere. It's collected in the oceans as the continents rose. The purpose of the flood was not to do away with local corruption, as in Sodom and Gomorrah, as in the land of Canaan. It was to do away with global corruption. The issue was global. The judgment is global. Genesis 6.13, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. This was a global judgment 
requiring a global flood. Global cosmology was permanently changed. That means the way that things operate on this earth in nature. We have changed relationships between man and beast. Man and beast are going to uh, not be in such harmonious relationship as they were before. This is something that God instilled in the hearts of these animals, and it wasn't in the local fields of Mesopotamia. It was all around the earth. No matter where you are on earth, you encounter a wild animal, and it either seeks to kill you or thinks you are seeking to kill it. There is enmity in the heart of man and animals. But this one we've looked at already. There was no rain before the flood. And afterwards, the manner of watering the ground changed. Genesis 9 tells us that God set his bow in the clouds, that is the rainbow, shall be a sign of a covenant between him and the earth. And he says, it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. This is evidently the beginning of rainbows. You can't have rain and never have a rainbow. If this was the first rainbow, then this would be the first rain. No longer did God water from a mist that came out of the ground using thermal vents, perhaps. Those had been drained. The waters that were under the crust are now above the crust. The very way of watering the ground has changed globally. It rains everywhere. God also makes a promise that makes it impossible for this to have been a local flood. He promised to never again send a flood like it. He says, I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. If this was just a local flood, then he has broken his promise countless times. And that is inconsistent with everything we know about God, who cannot break a promise. I tried to keep most of these in uh, either times that some of us were alive, essentially the last hundred or so years. Mississippi River in 1927, 26,000 miles squared of damage. That's a pretty big flood. Nowhere near the size of Noah's flood. Mississippi River, 1993, it lasted for 81 days. That's what made it impressive, was its length at 81 days. Far cry from 375 days. Hurricane Katrina in 2005 left 1,800 dead and affected 15 million. There were none who were affected that weren't dead in Noah's flood. Galveston in 1900, 8,000 dead. What made this impressive was a sustained depth of 15 feet at its deepest, not 22 and a half feet at its shallowest. Rapid City, 1972, 238 people dead. What's interesting about this one is it was caused by rain. Actually, it was caused by the government. <laughs> 
They seeded the clouds and it rained and rained and rained a profuse amount. In fact, my dad and his dad had to collect their friends out of the flood water there. How about some worldwide floods? Just in the past hundred years, most of these. The Yellow River in China, when it flooded, killed five to eight hundred thousand. Still nowhere near the size of Noah's flood. The Yangtze flood in 1935, just a few years before, they probably thought they had seen the worst of it. 145,000 dead. The Sumatra tsunami, 2004, 230,000 dead. The Sendai tsunami, which we just looked at a video clip of, 18,000 dead. Lisbon in 1755, I don't think any of us were alive for that one, 60,000 dead. That was a tsunami. Krakatau in Indonesia, 1883, 40,000 dead. There are countless floods that are local and impressive. But none compare to Noah's flood. In fact, I was a little disappointed that when I did a Google search for uh, world's worst floods, none of them listed Noah's flood. We live in a world of unbelief. That should be number one in all of them. Number 10, all of humanity stems from Noah. This only happens if no one else survives. <clears throat> Genesis 9, 18 and 19, now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Hem and Japheth, and Hem was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole world was populated. Each one of us can trace our genealogy back to Noah if the records existed. Most of us in this room can probably trace our ancestry back to either Ham, Japheth, or uh, Shem. It's uh, easier to uh, do this than uh, a little further down the line. We might do that when we get to uh, Genesis 10 and 11. Whenever the flood is mentioned, both in Old Testament and the New Testament, a unique term is used. Floods are talked about in Scripture. I think we looked a couple of weeks ago at the different terms used in Scripture for flood, and we discovered that mabul in the Hebrew and kataklusmos in the Greek are only used for Noah's flood. This was a unique flood unlike any others meriting unique terms. Number 12, every biblical reference to the flood presupposes its historicity and global nature. In 2 Peter 3, Peter relates this to two other global events, actually two other universal events, creation and the apocalypse. He says, by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed, creation, out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. The same domain, the same world that was created was now destroyed by water, the flood. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being preserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction. 
of ungodly men. This is Peter's, the days that were, the days that are, and the days to come. Peter's outline of history deals with three global events, creation, the flood, and the coming judgment. Jesus speaks of a global event. Just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. The judgment spoken of at the time of the Son of Man, the second coming of Christ, is a global event. He will set his feet down, first in Petra and then make his way to the Mount of Olives. But this is a universal conclusion to a universal judgment. He will rule over all of the earth after the whole earth has been judged. That is correlated with Noah's judgment. No other judgment, if this were something just to do with Israel, there were plenty of events he could have looked back on in Israel's history and said it's going to be like that. But no, it's going to be like the universal flood of Noah in the Psalms as well. It's spoken of as a universal flood. Psalm 104 verses 5 through 9, he established the earth upon its foundations, creation, so that it will never totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they hurried away. That's what we start to look at next week. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary so that they might not pass over, so that they will not return to cover the earth. This is all very consistent with what we read in Genesis. And this is probably not phenomenological language, which means this isn't what it appeared to be. It didn't look like the mountains were rising as the waters fled away, and it didn't look like the valleys were sinking. That's what actually happened. The mountains rose, the valleys sank. God did this so that the waters would recede. He created boundaries, our coastlines, so that the waters would not return. God knows what he's doing. He's able to create, he's able to judge his entire creation, and he's able to preserve his entire creation until the coming judgment is ready. Lastly, all cultures around the entire earth have flood myths. Interestingly, not Japan. Again, we'll talk about that when we get to Babel. I have a lot to say about Japan. How about South America? Here are the Canari, the Inca, the Mapuche, the Muisca, the Tupi, and the, uh, I didn't have another place to put the Polynesian myths of Ru or Nu'u, which is similar sounding to Noah. One of the Polynesian myths of Tauhaki. This is a dualistic two gods battling over man. And the one sends a flood to destroy man. The other rescues. This is not like the biblical account, but it has similarities. Where in their history did they get this idea of the entire earth being flooded by a god? And of a 
preserved group of people being protected and carried through the flood by a god. What they misunderstand is that it was the same god who did both. North America. Many of us are very familiar with these native tribes. Almost all of them have flood myths. And not all of them have the same flood myths. The Hopi Indians uh, speak of the fourth world that came out of a global flood. Comox Indians up in B.C., the Ojibwe, Algonquin, and Menomini Indians have uh, Manabazo. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. The Eskimos and the Nisqually, just in our own Nisqually Valley. They have their own flood myths. In fact, the Nisqually myth is called the beginning of the Nisqually world, born out of waters, with only a single family of Nisqually being preserved to populate that world. The Choctaw, the Ottawa, the Cree, the Inuit, they all have flood myths. Where did they come from except a global memory of a flood? I like the Anishinaabe, Turtle Island one. God preserved them on a turtle. It's pretty interesting. How about in Asia? Some of you have probably heard of the Mesopotamian Gilgamesh epic. It's one of the most closely resembling of Noah's flood. It's also the closest in location to where these uh, myths would have come from. The Gilgamesh epic in, in uh, Mesopotamia is from Babylonian Assyrian myths. The whole world came from Babylon. Naturally, this myth would remain there. Iran and India and Indonesia. China has you, the great, and Nua. Here's a, uh, a relief of Gilgamesh preparing sticks to take on his boat with him. Actually, this doesn't look much like Gilgamesh's boat. Gilgamesh was told to build a cube. This cube would have uh, rolled all over the place. It was not nearly as well constructed as Noah's Ark, which uh, would have resisted tipping. In India, the myths of Manu, where Vishnu sends a flood and also protects Manu through it. Chinese myth of Nua. The Korean myth of Namu Doryong. We have European myths as well of a global flood. In the Baltics, in Ireland, Wales, we have Norse myths. Here's a picture of the Libor Gabala Eren in Ireland. A worldwide flood. These are all over the place. In fact, here's a list of uh, all those which have at least four or more similarities with the biblical story. Syria, Babylon, Persia, Syria, Asia Minor, Turkey, Greece, Egypt, Italy, Lithuania, Russia, China, India, Cree, Cherokee, Papago, Aztecs, Peru, the Leeward Islands, Fiji, Hawaii. These all have incredible similarities. Destruction of the whole world by water. 
The purpose being because humanity was in transgression. The destruction was by a divine force not naturally occurring. A favored family was protected. An ark was provided. Humans were saved. Animals were saved. The flood covered the whole earth. They landed on a mountain. A bird was sent out to see if land was dry. This shows up in almost all of these myths. The survivors worship the gods once they get off the ark. And it was divine favor that was placed on those who were saved. It's almost as if this universal flood affected the entire world. And that the entire world has a collective memory of this judgment in the past. It was Don Carson who traveled to multiple different uh, native tribes and wrote a few books about his experience where he would encounter those who had uh, an understanding, at least, of biblical stories, though they were skewed slightly. One of his books, The Peace Child, where they already had an understanding of a coming child who would save them. Another one, Eternity in Their Hearts, where he talks about some of these memories of things that happened between Genesis 1 and Genesis 11. It's why it's called universal history. It's the history that the entire world shares, no matter what nationality or geography you're from. The whole world shares in this history of Noah. It's not surprising to us then that the entire world has a faint, if not vivid, memory of it. We're finally on point two. What was the purpose of all this? What was the purpose of this global flood? We've spent plenty of time on this in the last five weeks or so. It was to destroy the entire earth. And this is the chronicle of God's faithfulness to his word. Again, there is no getting around the universality of death here. Every single thing died. He uses a collection of all the terms that he has used up until now, promising that he would destroy. He says, all flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind, all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. He's basically catching with a net all of these terms that he has used up until now to describe the coming judgment to say that every word of it came to pass. Thus he blotted out, or he erased, every living thing, that is every upright thing, everything that was standing, that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, they were blotted out from the earth. Everything that God said came to pass. And it was the moment that the doors on the ark shut that the fates of all of those on either the ark or outside of the ark was sealed. And so we come to better understand here in Hebrews 11.7 what the author of Hebrews means when he says that by this construction of the ark, 
Noah condemned the whole world. The building of the ark was a 120-year testimony to God's coming judgment. And the building of the ark provided one singular way of salvation. Faith was necessary to trust that this ark was being provided for a coming judgment that may not have had any warning signs besides what God was saying would come. Granted, the earth was getting worse and worse, but there was no precedent yet on earth for God judging evil. This was the first time, at least on any massive scale. So as he built this ark and he preached righteousness and no one believed him, he constructed for him and his family the one means of salvation that God provided And everyone who did not believe was condemned because they did not accept the one way to be saved. See, Christianity does not uh, offer a narrow uh, worldview. In fact, Christianity is the only religion that gives two options. Every other religion has simply one option. Whether or not you think you're saved or not, if you are of a different faith, you're outside the ark. Christianity is the only one that offers an alternative. A different eternity, a different future, a different conclusion than ending in judgment. So where we get told we are narrow-minded because we have one way of salvation, at least we have a way of salvation. Yes, it is one narrow way, Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. But that is still one more option than the rest of the world has. We want them on the ark with us. We want them to be saved by the cross of Christ, just like Noah and his family were saved by the ark of of Noah. After that monotonous list of everything that died, using again all and all and all and all and all of everything that God said would be destroyed, God uses again an exclusive term here. Only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. The absolute black and white distinction. And the world was condemned then by the ark. If they were not on it, they were already judged. They were already as good as dead, even as the waters began to rise. Matthew Henry again writes, The waters which broke down everything else bore up the ark. That which to unbelievers is a savior of death unto death is to the faithful or the believers a savior of life unto life. The same thing that condemned the world saved Noah and his family. Just like the cross of Christ is the same thing that condemns the world. But it saves all who put their faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work and nothing else. The last verse here in our chapter, chapter 7, 
the waters prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Once again, God sets a limit to his judgment. This is the first time we get a sense of how long this might last. It has reached its peak. 150 days, that is five months in total from beginning to peak. And then what happens? God remembered Noah. Noah will not be forgotten. We have not been forgotten. We are safely, securely secured in the cross of Christ. And though the earth around us sometimes seems like a flood of violence, we are not forgotten. We are simply waiting for the Lord to turn his face back towards us and say, now it is time. And so we have here the answer to our question, is there any hope for this world? And this answer might surprise you. No. Revelation 21 tells us of the future of this world. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. The earth that was before Noah perished. God recreated. What gets saved is us. And how incredibly merciful of him. The earth still has a future ahead of it but it does not have an eternity ahead of it. We have an eternity ahead of us. In fact, we have already begun our eternity. The first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. That should bring up images of the flood for us. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. No, there is no, uh, how did I phrase that? There is no hope for this world, but much better that there not be, because when this world passes away, we dwell together with God. Now, we don't want to say about this world that we currently live in, it's going to burn anyways, so let's forget about it. We have been given a stewardship. While we are on this earth, we are thankful for the gift of this earth. We long for the day where it passes away and we will be restored to new bodies on a new earth in the presence of God. And so he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The first things will pass away, just as the earth passed away in Noah's day. Only this destruction will be even more complete. So how do we get on that ark? I am pretty sure that every single person in this room is already safe and secure and locked inside that ark. But it's good 
to be reminded of that security that we have. And it's good to refresh our memories just in case we meet someone who is not locked inside that ark. In fact, most of the people we meet in a day probably are not. Easiest place to turn is John 3.16. Most of us have it memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He who did not get on the ark before it was sealed was judged already, being a part of the world that perished. Noah being on the ark, just like we, trusting in the cross of Christ, are saved already. 1 John 2.17, the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And what is the will of God? Keep on believing. What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? The crowd asks Jesus. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And this is what we do. We continue to trust in him. We seek no other means of saving ourselves. We are already saved. Noah wasn't running around the ark fretting about how he was possibly going to save himself. He was already saved. He trusted the Lord. He went about his business on the ark. He went about his responsibilities waiting for the judgment to be over. And so our takeaway, will this earth survive? Not as it is today. It does have a future. Even after the judgment, we still have a thousand years left on this earth. There is still a purpose for God on this earth before it passes away. And thanks be to God for that. He is making all things new. First, he will have to reign on this earth before it can pass away. So this earth will not survive, but before it passes away, Jesus will reign victorious and we will be rescued. Trust him. His promises are trustworthy. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we are so thankful for your trustworthy word that we can lean on it, that we can rely on it, that we need seek no other place of salvation. We are securely locked inside your double grip of grace. We thank you uh, for the finished work of Christ on the cross. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.